Hey guys, welcome back to the Anthology of Heroes podcast, where we share the stories of figures and events who changed the course of history. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates. Today is part four of our series following Operation Barbarossa, Adolf Hitler's doomed invasion of the USSR in 1941. In this episode, we'll tell the story of that fateful city, Stalingrad. It's impossible to overstate how important the Battle of Stalingrad was for the overall outcome of World War II, because this industrial city of minimal strategic value will be where the exhausted German 6th Army meets its end. The back and forth battle to control the city would rage for over five months, and within this time period, somewhere between one and two million people would perish. Estimates vary wildly, but even with the lower figures, this battle is most likely the deadliest battle in the history of our species. Winston Churchill said that at Stalingrad, quote, the hinge of fate turned, and that hinge was the people on the ground. Amidst the burning rubble and ash blackened shrapnel, the average lifespan for a Russian soldier entering the city was just 24 hours. In the last three episodes, we've sat on the shoulders of the High Command, Hitler, Stalin, Zhukov, Polis, and Choykov. We watched as their orders directly and indirectly changed things on the ground. But all of them were spared the ultimate consequences from their decision. Stalin wasn't going to be shot if he disobeyed Order 227, and Hitler didn't have to spend the winter of 1941 in a snowdrift eating horse flesh. In this episode, we're going to hear from the men that did. The grunts, the foot soldiers, the cannon fodder who were thrown into this war. We're going to hear what they thought of the war and of their leaders. Throughout this episode, when we cut between scenes, I'll read out German letters that were sent home from Stalingrad to sweethearts, fathers, mothers, or friends. The letters are probably the most authentic, palpable thoughts ever captured from frontline soldiers of this era. In their final moments, when the propaganda and hate melts away, you'll see that their last thoughts are mainly memories of human connections and time spent with loved ones. If nothing else, they're a reminder to cherish the little moments you have with your friends, your family, or your loved ones. Over the course of this episode, we followed the invasion as it took shape in Wehrmacht HQ. Through the mass encirclements of Kiev, past the tooth-chattering winter of 1941, before coming to a halt with the fuel crisis of 1942, when things got started, the plan looked to be another one of Hitler's masterstrokes. Groups of 100,000, 300,000, even 500,000 Red Army soldiers were taken prisoner. And rightfully feeling responsible, Joseph Stalin fell into a depressive stupor. But slowly the grit of the Russian people and Stalin's decision to relocate the industry of the USSR began to turn the tide. Outside the very gates of Moscow, the Germans were pushed back for the first time since World War II began. Bloodied but not defeated, the Wehrmacht changed direction and moved south in an attempt to reach the rich oil fields of the Caucasus. Bending around the Volga River, the city of Stalingrad acted as a kind of gateway to this region, and an increasingly delusional Adolf Hitler announced that taking this gateway was now the number one priority for the Wehrmacht. Every other front was mothballed, and every weapon in the German war chest was allocated to the capture of the city. So, rushing troops from the north, Stalin leapt to the defense of the city of his namesake. Apart from Hitler and Stalin, our other main characters in this series are Georgi Zhukov, number one frenemy and troubleshooter for Joseph Stalin. Broad-chested and confident, Zhukov was calm under pressure. Others said about him, as danger increased, he became like a tightly coiled spring, alert and focused. Zhukov was rare for a staff officer, 
in the sense that he told Stalin what he thought, and he got away with it. His advice, as much as Stalin hated to admit it, had probably saved the USSR at least once. Under him was a man cut from the same cloth, Marshal Vasily Chuikov. Chuikov was a man who death always seemed to stalk, but could never quite catch. With almost as many pieces of shrapnel in his body as medals on his chest, Chuikov was never far from danger. His men called him the Stone, a fitting name as the Wehrmacht seemed to break upon him. Flat-faced, with thin, slanted eyes, gold teeth, and a mop of dark hair, Chuikov had the stereotypical look of a Russian peasant. And as German troops poured into Stalingrad, Zhukov and Stalin had put him in charge of the city's defences. On the German side of the field was Marshal Friedrich Paulus. Paulus was about as different from Chuikov as anyone could be. A polite and industrious staff officer, Paulus had never commanded troops before this appointment. Described by his peers as more of a scientist than a general, Paulus was tall, a little ungainly, with a high hairline and a recessed jaw. In his spare time, he liked to look over old maps of Napoleon's invasion of Russia. When he was under stress, his bowels loosened, and a tick on the side of his face would tweak. And there'd be a lot of that to come, because Paulus had been rushed through a bunch of promotions to become the commander of the Wehrmacht 6th Army, tasked with capturing Stalingrad. As you can hear, we've covered quite a bit. I've summarised our main figures, but the character development for Stalin and Hitler, as well as the development of the campaign itself, are all very interesting, so I'd really recommend starting at part one before jumping into this episode. We left the last episode as the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, announced their arrival at Stalingrad with the largest bombing run they'd conducted since the invasion began. Incendiary bombs rained down on Stalingrad, as the first few of the city's white apartment blocks collapsed into the street below. Before we get started, if this episode sounds a little different than usual, I'm currently recording from a studio as all of my gear is, at this moment, being shipped across the South China Sea to Australia. For more information on that and our release schedule, check out our Season 5 wrap-up episode. As a heads up, rape and violence will be mentioned in passing several times throughout this episode. And a big hello to anyone watching from the live stream. So let's get into it. Hitler's Folly, Operation Barbarossa, Part 4, Fortress Stalingrad. In the evening of the 23rd of August 1942, the women and children of Stalingrad pulled the corpses of their friends and neighbours from the rubble of their homes. Prior to the bombing, Stalingrad had been something of a model city for the USSR. Named after the dictator himself, its new-built apartment blocks featured pristine views of the shimmering Volga River, which lapped peacefully at the banks of the city. Loosely, Stalingrad was split into north, central and southern districts. Most of the employment was to be found in factories in the north, while in the southern district, docks and railway stations were where all the supplies were brought in. But it was the central district that was the most picturesque. Bulging from flat banks was an old Tata burial ground that had been repurposed as a central park complete with wildflowers, picnic spots, and ice cream stands. Now, as the drone of air raid sirens began to subside, that tranquility seemed a lifetime ago. The Fuhrer now considered the capture of Stalingrad the number one priority for the Wehrmacht, and speed was of the utmost importance. It was now almost autumn, and once Stalingrad fell, the Wehrmacht still had to march on the oil fields in the south and secure the Black Sea, all of this preferably before winter set in. That gave them about six months. There was no room for errors, no room for setbacks, no room for other opinions. Many of the Fuhrer's generals who had been instrumental to his earlier victories had now been dismissed. 
Von Bock, Kleist, Liszt, and Heim all gone. But most shockingly, Hitler had also fired Franz Halder. Halder was to Hitler what Zhukov was to Stalin. The chief of staff had been snippy with Hitler since Operation Barbarossa began. As the invasion dragged on, in his private diary, he bashed the dictator more and more. Eventually, Hitler had enough of his back chat, and he fired his chief of staff, telling him, quote, You and I have been suffering from nerves. Half my nervous exhaustion is due to you. It's not worth it to go on. We need national socialist ardor now, not professional ability. I cannot expect this of an officer of the old school, such as you. For Hitler to explicitly state, we don't need professional ability, was just one more red flag of the Fuhrer's egotistical megalomania, believing he alone was all the Wehrmacht needed for success. As Friedrich Paulus led the Sixth Army towards Stalingrad, the weight on his shoulders must have been heavy. He was now answerable directly to the Fuhrer. There were no more smooth-talking field marshals to sugarcoat any setbacks and big up victories. The buck now stopped with him, and he must have wondered, am I up to this? For the Red Army High Command, there was none of this high school drama. For Marshal Vasily Choykov, his assignment to Stalingrad consisted of a five-minute meeting. To ensure Choykov had understand the mission, the representative asked him to explain his objective. Without missing a beat, Choykov responded, quote, We shall hold the city or die here. They offered him a cup of tea, he said no thanks, and he was whisked off to Stalingrad. By early September 1942, the last line of defense for the Red Army, the Volga River, had been breached. The speed in which the Germans encircled the city had caught the Red Army completely off guard. Burning through the last few canisters of fuel, they'd already made it to the outskirts of Stalin's city, where inside, Chukov, desperately waiting on reinforcements from the north, scrambled to fortify the corridors, and NKVD agents ran through the suburbs, pasting up propaganda posters on walls and lampposts. Each poster had the same message, resist. Citizens were ordered to barricade themselves in their apartment blocks and turn each block into a fortress. They were told not to give an inch of ground. The posters didn't mince words either. One large newspaper print showed a frightened young girl with hands tied behind her back and a headline that read, What if your beloved girl is tied up like this by fascists? And underneath it continued, First, they'll rape her insolently, and then throw her under a tank. Advance, warrior. Shoot the enemy. Your duty is to prevent the violator from ravaging your girl. Critical to the rapid German advance was their air force. More than just bombing runs, the Luftwaffe provided cover for all ground operations. One Russian soldier talks about the horrible sounds these aircrafts made, quote, From that terrible day, I could never bear the wild animal howling of German Stukas. The wailing they emit is head-splitting. It freezes your soul, casts you into confusion, paralyzes you like the gaze of a venomous cobra and lingers in your ears for a long, long time. With no air force of its own, the only thing slowing the advance was the heroic Red Army female anti-air gunners. These women had between a few weeks and a few months of training, but as shells were so expensive, many of them had actually never fired a live round. Nevertheless, they learnt quickly and they were fearless. Many waved away their comrades as the air raids sounded, and as bombs rained down around them, they kept firing until the bitter end. By the time the September rain set in, the Germans were perilously close to the capture of the city. They occupied about 70% of it, and each attack pushed Chukov further and further back, leading him to a remark after one attack, quote, One more battle like that, and we'll be in the Volga. 
Sloshing through the mud, the Germans came night and day, and the Red Army hit back with everything it could. From their factories in the north of the city, tanks were pushed off the assembly line with astonishing speed. Unprimed with metal that was still warm, they arrived piecemeal at the front. To save time, no gun sights were installed, and crew could only fire them by looking through the barrel before loading the shell. Choykov understood that he was on a mission to buy time. Time for the Stavka to ready a counterattack. Time for the Allies to push back in France. Time for General Winter to arrive in the East. As he himself said, quote, Time is blood. Men's very lives became the currency in which time could be bought. And it's with the implementation of this strategy that Choykov really started to shine as a commander. The majority of the Marshal's career had been spent fighting in open warfare, pitched battles. So the densely packed urban warfare of Stalingrad was completely new to him. But unlike other commanders who stubbornly clung to strategies they were familiar with, Choykov adapted his tactics, throwing away anything that didn't work. The Wehrmacht ruled the sky, he couldn't change that, but he realized they were much less willing to drop bombs if there was a chance of hitting their own German troops. So he began to order his commanders to hug enemy positions. He ordered his divisions to remain as close as possible to the enemy. With little more than a street, house, or even a wall separating Germans and Russians, the Luftwaffe became more cautious with their bombing runs. Aware that his hastily assembled tanks were inferior to the German ones, he drove the metal beasts into piles of rubble throughout the city. Buried in debris up to the turrets, it became impossible for Wehrmacht soldiers to know if a twisted pile of scrap metal camouflaged a working tank, again slowing them down. On the morning of September the 14th, General Chulkov deployed his very last reserve. 19 tanks and a few hundred soldiers departed his headquarters into the blazing city. Eyeing the few pistols and crates of grenades in his cramped HQ, he must have seriously thought that this day might be his last. He said in his biography that his office felt like a grave. Low earthen ceilings and dirt falling upon his head were a constant reminder of the man's own mortality. With nothing left to lose, he tried something that he was almost sure would fail. The NKVD were a specialist branch of Soviet military. Sort of like the secret police, they maintained their own military arm and command structure. And the men in that military arm were quite good too. Highly motivated and well-trained, they were mostly stationed at military checkpoints outside the city. If Choykov could tap into their reserves, he could keep the fire burning a little longer. So he summoned a high-ranking NKVD colonel and effectively told him he was taking control of his troops. The colonel said no, absolutely not, but Choykov pushed him, telling him if he didn't like it, he'd get Stalin on the phone right now. It was a bold move from Choykov because if push came to shove, he didn't actually know whose side Stalin would take, but he had nothing to lose. His position would be overrun in the next day if he didn't get men now. Faced with the thought of having to answer to Stalin if the city fell, the colonel reluctantly agreed. Time was blood, and with it, Choykov had bought himself a few more days. With the newly arrived NKVD troops providing cover, Choykov was finally confident enough to authorize a river crossing. With all the entrances held by the Nazis, the Volga was now the only route in or out of the city. The serene calm of the river had now become a soupy mess of oil and blood, and to cross it was to put yourself in the most vulnerable position of all. A hodgepodge of transport boats, paddle steamers, gunboats, or even rowboats were all the USSR had access to. And on this day, making the crossing were 10,000 men of the 13th Rifle Division. Rushed straight from training camps, these men were incredibly green. 
one in ten didn't even have a rifle. The experience of paddling towards this inferno would stay with them for the rest of their lives. Arriving at the river, a driftwood sign nailed to a tree with the word ferry scrawled on it let them know they'd reached their destination. Operational staff rushed to each soldier and dumped into his arms a few grenades, some ammunition, bread, sugar, and a sausage, and then shoved them towards the boats. Before the men knew what were happening, they were aboard a bullet-ridden paddle steamer heading towards Stalingrad. One soldier said there was so much smoke they couldn't actually see where they were headed, but he could, quote, feel the hot breath of the city. He went on to say, quote, this must be how Rome looked after Nero put it to the torch. The only difference is that here the inferno was made worse by the screaming shells and lethal explosions, increasing the madness and giving the onlooker the impression that he's witnessing the end of the world. A German shell made a direct hit on the boat next to one soldier, killing 20 men, splattering water and gore onto the adjacent boats. The Volga itself looked like a disgusting broth full of dead fish, slicks of oil, and floating body parts. For the men on this boat, statistically, they were likely to be dead within 24 hours. That same soldier goes on to say, quote, The further we penetrate into the city, the closer the shells fall around us. The sky is glowing over Stalingrad. Grayish-white smoke billows from the ground. Flames shoot high in the sky in between. The long, probing fingers of searchlights tear at the half-darkness of the breaking day. Bombs are ceaselessly raining down on a city that has been condemned to death. That particular description of Stalingrad was actually from a German soldier named Gunter Kushori, but at this point, the German experience was probably equal to that of the Russian. Paulus, predictably, was a nervous wreck. Hitler had handed him a blank check for the operation and was constantly checking in to see when his investment would pay off. How long until Stalingrad fell? Hitler asked him continuously, daily, hourly. All Paulus could do was relay the facts that his generals gave him. He told Hitler that he expected the Russian casualties would roughly double their own and turned the question back to the Fuhrer. How many men do they have left? Hitler told the Judith Marshal the same lie that he told his generals, his minister, the public and the press. A lie that he probably now believed too. That the Russians were down to their last reserves and there were no more men they could call upon. Paulus was respectful enough not to point out that the Fuhrer had been saying this for almost a year and a half now. All he could do was believe Hitler, because he was churning through reserves at a terrifying rate. All of the Reich waited in bated breath for the news of the city's capitulation. The press were already ready with camera crews to film the historic event. A few months back, the average German soldier had never even heard of Stalingrad, but Nazi propaganda had whipped them into such a frenzy, there was now even greater excitement than there was during the assault on Moscow. Joseph Goebbels had to actually tell the editors to tone down the hype a few levels on the off chance the city didn't fall within the next few days. Only a few kilometers away from Paulus, Marshal Choykov was again down to his last reserves. By now, any idea of a front line had gone out the window. One battalion held a grain silo in the north, another squad held a department store in the south, and smaller bands were split apart throughout the city with little pockets of Nazis in between. Communication between the Red Army divisions was so frequently disrupted that Chukov had been forced to grant his soldiers a high degree of autonomy. From here on out, divisions would need to operate with the assumption they would be cut off from communications for days or even weeks at a time. And this led him to a new approach, sometimes called his strong point strategy. 
crumbling apartment blocks and the shells of factories were transformed into what he coined centers of resistance. And Chukov gave guidance on how these centers of resistance were to be set up. They should have 360 degrees of vision on the suburbs below. They should have a space for their own makeshift hospital, mess hall, ammunition dump, and headquarters. Ideally, burnt-out apartment blocks were best because they could not be set on fire, and buildings that had a basement were particularly prized as soldiers could ambush the convoys outside before retreating back underground. Strong points soon became strong pockets. Once an apartment building was secured, soldiers would wait until nightfall, creep across to the neighbouring building, clear it out and secure it, and so on and so on. Chukov was making innovations on the fly. Really, he was making it up as he went along. And for a fairly old-school general, especially a Soviet one, who was used to pitched battles and front lines, he showed a commendable amount of adaptability and creative thinking. Casualties skyrocketing, the Germans soon began to use a similar strategy. But we've got to remember, the victory conditions were different. The Russians just needed to hold on to what they had. But the Germans needed to defend their strong points while taking Russian ones. By mid-September, the fighting in the city was reaching its climax. The Wehrmacht was now on the brink of splitting the Russian-controlled portions of the city in two. For the Red Army, this would be a disaster. They were used to operating independently for a few days, but Chukov knew if they permanently lost control of entire districts, soldiers would either surrender or be killed. Wehrmacht Lieutenant Weiner paints a vivid picture of how it was to live in the city at this point, quote, The street is no longer measured by meters, but by corpses. Stalingrad is no longer a town. By day, it is an enormous cloud of burning, blinding smoke. It is a vast furnace lit by the reflection of the flames. And when night arrives, one of those scorching, howling, bleeding nights, the dogs plunge to the Volga and swim desperately to the other bank. The nights of Stalingrad are a terror for them. Animals flee this hell. The hard stones cannot bear it for long. Only men endure. Well, now you know that I shall never return. Break it to our parents gently. I am deeply shaken and doubt everything. I used to be strong and full of faith. Now I am small and without faith. I will never know many of the things that happen here. But the little I have taken part in is already so much that it chokes me. No one can tell me any longer that men died with the words Deutschland or Heil Hitler on their lips. There was plenty of dying, no question of that. But their last word is mother, or the names of someone dear, or just a cry for help. I've seen hundreds fall and die already, and many belonged to the Hitler Youth as I did. But all of them, if they could still speak, called for help, or shouted a name which could not help them anyway. The Fuhrer made a firm promise to bail us out of here. They read it to us, and we believed in it firmly. Even now I still believe it, because I have to believe in something. If it is not true, what else could I believe in? I would no longer need spring, summer, or anything that gives pleasure. So leave me my faith, dear Greta. All my life, at least eight years of it, I believed in the Fuhrer and his word. It is terrible how they doubt here, and shameful to listen to what they say without being able to reply, because they have the facts on their side. If what we were promised is not true, then Germany will be lost, and in that case no more promises can be kept. Oh, these doubts, these terrible doubts. If they could only be cleared up soon.
In the Kremlin, Stalin wore out the carpet of his office pacing up and down as he barked orders at everyone and anyone to get him a status report on what was going on. In the middle of reports about the largest attack yet, the Stavka had lost contact with Chokov. They'd intercepted German communications announcing that the city had fallen, but no one seemed to know for sure. The US Embassy at Moscow certainly believed it, and they were already preparing accordingly. Everyone was in a state of panic, wondering if Moscow would be next again. But in the burning city, Choykov was still there. As clumps of dirt rained down upon him and his staff, line repairers, mostly women, scurried across the city patching up fried cables. After an anxious afternoon, the gruff voice of Chukov warbled into Starva HQ. Stalingrad still held, but just barely. As unhelpful as ever, Stalin told Chukov to fight harder and counterattack as soon as he was able. Chukov may have wondered where all his reinforcements were. Over and over, he'd requested brigades and instead been drip-fed platoons. By his own words, he didn't know what the Stavka were planning, but he knew they must be working on something. For months now, Stalin had been pushing the Stavka to launch their long-awaited counterattack, more than pushing, insisting that it had to start now. But our old friend Georgi Zukov, who had since been promoted to Deputy Supreme Commander, pleaded with Stalin to just give him a few more weeks. As usual, Zukov pushed Stalin further than any others dared, copping an earful as the dictator roared at him, quote, any delay is equivalent to a crime. Stalin was more than ready to send in the unwashed masses without training or rifles, but Zhukov had seen firsthand what one well-placed Maxim gut could do against waves of men. So as he delayed and delayed again, Zhukov rushed soldiers through training, scraping together every rifle he could find and redistributing artillery all across the front. It was a fine balancing act because if Chukov lost Stalingrad, it would all be for nothing. And the longer they delayed, the greater the chance of that occurring. After much convincing, Stalin finally relented, and Zhukov knew this would be the last delay he'd be granted. With little reinforcements to speak of, and Stalin still refusing to allow any retreat, Chukov ordered his troops to reduce the front line to just 50 yards, 45 meters. This was a ballsy move almost daring the Luftwaffe to continue bombing their positions when the chance of friendly fire would be so high. Minute by minute, the Wehrmacht advanced closer and closer, now almost outside Chukov's headquarters. But still, Stalin refused a retreat. Everyone in the Stavka knew Chukov would die at his post. But what good would that do? Somehow this man had resisted the German onslaught for three months. If he died, who would replace him? At last, when the Germans were almost on top of his position, Chukov and his staff received Stalin's permission to retreat. Scurrying out of their bunker as the Germans advanced in, they moved into their last refuge in the northern districts of the city. The Red Army were now holding on to Stalingrad by their fingernails. You are my witness and I never wanted to go along with it because I was afraid of the East. In fact, of war in general. I've never been a soldier. Only a man in uniform. What do I get out of it? What did the others get out of it? Those who went along and were not afraid. Yes, what are we getting out of it? We who are playing the walk-on parts in this madness incarnate. What good does a hero's death do us? I've played death on the stage dozens of times, but I was only playing, and you sat out front in plush seats and thought my acting was authentic and true. 
It is terrible to realise how little the acting had to do with real death. He was supposed to die heroically, inspiringly, movingly from inner conviction and for a great cause. But what is death in reality here? Here they croak, starve to death, freeze to death. It's nothing but a biological fact like eating and drinking. They drop like flies. Nobody cares and nobody buries them. Without arms or legs, without eyes, with bellies torn open, they lie around everywhere. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. By mid-October, the siege had dragged on for two months. The Wehrmacht now controlled about 85% of the city. Apart from Chulkov's HQ, the Red Army were clinging onto a few apartment blocks in the centre and around the train station. Paulus had double the amount of men, all the air cover and most of the tanks. And it was figures like this that Hitler continually hit back with when he needed to justify the siege. Off the top of his head, he could rattle off the number of men, the number of planes, the number of tanks, even the thickness of their concrete bunkers. But continually, he disregarded the less tangible combat modifiers Morale, fatigue, hunger, and cold. He told Paulus to ready the troops for October the 14th. This day, he announced, from the comfort of his bunker, would be the day of the final assault on Stalingrad. Chukov's centres of resistance had been the primary barrier to the Wehrmacht's advance, so Hitler's solution was just to remove them. Another round of carpet bombing to just level the city, reduce it to nothing, then the rats would have nowhere to hide. Hitler knew time was running out, Winter was just around the corner. If he didn't take the city soon, the Wehrmacht would need to spend another winter in Russia. Even in a dictatorial state like Nazi Germany, optics mattered. How much longer could his papers spin the story of victory being just around the corner? He had to end this godforsaken war before winter. On October the 14th, the sky turned a dark grey as the Luftwaffe unleashed another 550 tonnes of bombs on the city. Leaving the Red Army no time to recover, Nazi ground troops burst through the lower levels of the tractor factory, one of the last major holdouts for the Red Army. Cruel booby traps maimed the first men to enter, and the Red Army from above sprayed bullets down on the troops. Through the steam and heat, the Germans took many casualties that they advanced room by room, level by level. With visibility being so poor, the flamethrower units torched entire rooms rather than risk entering them. Red Army soldiers continually ran low on ammunition and often resorted to charging German soldiers with sharpened spades or trench knives. Chukov told his men to be active at night and deny the Germans rest, 
taking any advantage he could to try and level the playing field stacked against him. Specially trained dogs would run under German tanks with a hand grenade strapped to their back. And Vasily Zaitsev, the most famous Russian sniper in Stalingrad, MacGyvered his sniper optics onto an anti-tank rifle and began explosively sniping machine gun nests. In the ruined apartment blocks, everyone was now crammed together like sardines. There could be a German squadron on the top floor, a Russian on the middle floor, and civilians on the ground floor. Clad in old brown rags and dusted with ash, it was impossible to tell friend from foe. Sometimes men would bump into each other late at night, and it would turn into like an old western gunfight as both men reached for their weapon and yelled out for help. The world had become black and white, snow and smoke, oil and sky. Despite the pitiless conditions, for the Russians fighting at Stalingrad, there was now an element of pride involved. They knew their whole country stood with them. In his biography, Chukov writes, perhaps with a little bit of embellishment, quote, The men were in such a mood that if they were wounded, even with a broken spine, they had tears in their eyes as they were taken to the East Bank. They'd say to their comrades who brought them out, I don't want to go, better to be buried here. For these men, this was shaping up to be the great battle of their generation. If they could survive, they could look forward to telling their children, their grandchildren, that they were there. They'd fought at Stalingrad. In Stalingrad, to put the question of God's existence means to deny it. I must tell you this, Father, and I feel doubly sorry for it. You have raised me because I had no mother and always kept God before my eyes and soul. And I regret my words doubly because they will be my last. And I won't be able to speak with any words afterwards which might reconcile you and make up for these. You are a pastor, Father. And in one's last letter, one says only what is true and what one might believe to be true. I have searched for God in every crater, in every destroyed house, on every corner, in every friend, in my foxhole and in the sky. God did not show himself, even though my heart cried for him. The houses were destroyed, the men as brave or as cowardly as myself. On earth there was hunger and murder. From the sky bombs came and fire. Only God was not there. No, Father, there is no God. Again I write it, and I know this is terrible, and I cannot make up for it ever. And if there should be God, he is only with you in the hymns and in the prayers in the pious sayings of priests and pastors, in the ringing of bells and the fragrance of incense, but not in Stalingrad. October gave way to November, and the final assault Hitler promised petered out. The city had been levelled, but still there were no white flags or ceasefires from the Red Army. And now, alarmingly, when the Wehrmacht soldiers gulped down their morning soup, there was a barely noticeable crust of ice they needed to pierce with their spoons. The winter was almost upon them. With most of Chuikov's strong points leveled, he again adapted to a new type of warfare. The Wehrmacht would christen it Rattenkrieg, War of the Rats. Amongst the rubble, in literal caves or holes in the ground, the Red Army soldiers set up shop. From now on, there would be less gunfights in the street and more hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Chuikov, realizing the Germans preferred to kill from a distance, pushed his men to get nice and close before making a killing blow. The primal roar as Red Army soldiers tore out from their hovels and charged, eyes wide and bayonets raised, that, he said, 
would terrify the Wehrmacht. The glow of the burning city cast long shadows on the walls as Red Army soldiers crept quietly from their bunkers. Dropping into the sewers, they'd re-emerge behind German positions. Once they'd killed all they could and stolen all they could, they'd melt back into the shadows. Lone German sentries on night duty were particularly vulnerable. Staring into the pitch black, their fingers always on the trigger, listening for the slightest noise in the darkness. The Red Army took to launching flares to mark the commencement of a night attack, but only sometimes would an attack actually follow. German defenders had their sleep disrupted as they ran to the rally point in preparation. As the radio cables were continually destroyed, Russian squadrons dropped out of radio communication for days or weeks. Chukov instilled in them the necessity of self-reliance to do what they needed to do to survive. Ration both your water and ammunition as you may go days without either. Self-sacrifice went hand in hand with self-reliance and one of the most memorable scenes of the siege was the last stand of Mikhail Panikarko of the 193rd Rifle Division. Pinned down by German panzers and out of anti-tank grenades, Panikarko leapt from his trench with a Molotov cocktail in each hand. As he wound back his arm to throw one, a lucky German bullet shattered the bottle in his hand. Drenched in petrol, Panikarko went up in flames, but staggering forward, he hurled himself over the last few yards and flung his body against the side of a tank, smashing the other bottle in a ball of fire against the side. Heroism like this was not only commonplace, it was expected. Chukov's sense of duty to the motherland was as brutal and as unforgiving as Stalin's. As he stated, quote, In the burning city, we do not suffer cowards. One time he found a squadron of soldiers on the wrong side of the Volga River. Believing they were trying to desert, he pulled out his pistol, executed the commander, turned to the commissar and executed him too. A few minutes later, he shot both brigade commanders and their commissars. Justifying his actions, Chukov said in his biography that if anyone found him on the wrong side of the river, then he would have been shot too, and his executioners would have been right to do it. Some went even further. One of Chukov's generals, unimpressed with the discipline of his troops, reintroduced the ancient Roman punishment of decimation. Walking the line of soldiers, he shot every tenth man then and there. There is no land for us behind the Volga, became a popular saying for the soldiers. In other words, Stalingrad was all that remained. For the Russian soldier, there was no point thinking about tomorrow. There was just this moment. Every day was a game of chance and luck, and the prize for surviving was the evening, when their daily ration of vodka was doled out. As if in the presence of something holy, all fell silent when the vodka was passed around. And when soldiers couldn't get it, anything alcoholic was substituted. Filtering antifreeze through a gas mask was one technique of making moonshine. We'll never know how many died from homebrew like this, but one particularly nasty batch killed 28 soldiers who passed around this concoction that one of them referred to as, quote, a kind of wine. But if you thought support personnel had it any easier, medical orderlies in these primitive hospitals went for days without sleep. Ghostly pale and sickly, they became walking blood banks when reserves ran dry. On busy nights, it was not uncommon for them to collapse due to blood loss. Female orderlies carried wounded soldiers over their shoulders for miles from the front line to these hospitals. By now, the city itself was so pulverized that the Luftwaffe remarked there were few targets remaining. Every block now looked the same. 
black, smoldering craters with nothing but an oil fire delineating one neighborhood from another. Where houses once stood, there were just anthills. The only markers of basements that beckoned doom for any soldier who entered. But one structure jutting out from the featureless black mass was a grain elevator. This unassuming, brutalist structure would soon be printed on the back of badges, patches, and postcards. If there was one structure that symbolized Red Army resistance, it was this one. The Stalingrad grain elevator was a plant designed to process and store grain, a rectangular flat-faced building with a grain chute poking outside. It had also become the last holdout for a group of Russian soldiers in an area that had long fallen to the Wehrmacht. Cut off and isolated, the men inside knew they were on their own. The initial offer to surrender was met with a spray of bullets as the soldiers carefully meted out their rations of food, ammunition, and water. With just two machine guns and two old anti-tank guns, the men inside repelled attack after attack. From all sides, the German troops ran at the building, but each time they were pushed back by the stubborn defenders. Artillery pounded at the walls, but the soldiers doggedly held on inside. Making every bullet count, they waited until the attackers were close enough to ensure a kill shot. The Wehrmacht likely believed they were facing a full company or even a battalion, but inside, the reality was there were just 50 men. In a single day, they repelled 10 attacks. Inside, the air was thick and dry with grain dust as the soldiers methodically manned their posts, passing around their few precious bullets and whatever food they had left. After five days, their water, food, and ammunition were all gone, and as the Germans finally smashed through the concrete, the six men that still lived slipped away into the night. On November the 19th, the German 6th Army awoke to a peculiar sound, a dull kind of grumbling in their rear. When they went to investigate, they learnt the sound was caused by chunks of ice in the river freezing and grinding against one another. The Volga River had now frozen. From this point onwards, they would need icebreakers to bring in supplies, and soon even that would be insufficient. Each German soldier had to now come to terms with the fact that they'd be spending Christmas in this pitiless wasteland. It was just like last year, but worse. Now they were deeper into Russia with virtually no supplies and a shrinking number of ways to obtain them. Some German soldiers' rations had been cut down to just 50 grams of dried bread per day. The temperature had already fallen to minus 18 Celsius, zero degrees Fahrenheit, the first taster of what general winter had in store for them. But thousands of miles away, Hitler was not worried. The panic had set in last year too, but if you'll remember from our last episode, the Luftwaffe had managed to airdrop food and fuel to the troops. In the dictator's mind, he believed that if push came to shove, the Luftwaffe could again save the day. But that was irrelevant because Stalingrad, he believed, would fall any day now. Nobody knows what will happen to us now, but I think this is the end. Those are hard words, but you must understand them the way they are meant. Times are different now from the day I said goodbye and became a soldier. Then we still lived in an atmosphere which was nourished by a thousand hopes and expectations of everything turning out well in the end. But even then we are hiding a paralyzing fear beneath the words of farewell which were to console us for two months of happiness as man and wife. I still remember one of your letters in which you wrote you just wanted to bury your face in your hands in order to forget. 
And I told you then that all this had to be and that the nights in the East were much darker and more difficult than those at home. The dark nights of the East have remained. They have turned much darker than I had ever anticipated. In such nights, one often listens for the deeper meaning of life. And sometimes there is an answer. Now space and time stand between us and I'm about to step over the threshold which will separate us eternally from our own little world and lead into that greater one which is more dangerous, yes, even devastating. If I could have made it through this war safely, I would have understood for the first time what it means to be man and wife in its true and deepest sense. I also know it now, now that these last lines are going to you. The white modern city that had stood before the 23rd of August was now completely unrecognisable. A black, smouldering wasteland had taken its place. Bomb craters pocked every inch of the city, glass and shrapnel covered every surface. At the old Tartar burial ground, not a single wildflower or blade of grass still remained. This patch of earth had been fought over perhaps more than any other, and with each artillery barrage, freshly buried corpses were churned up to the surface. In spindling, teetering towers, Russian soldiers counted their bullets as they waited for German officers to fall into their sights. And in the few buildings that still remained, Russian and German troops warmed their hands around fires, with only a thin layer of concrete separating the two. In the middle of the city, a statue of a group of children playing had somehow survived the bombing. The stark figures of happy children made for an almost ghostly presence in the cold gloom of the city. Under the streets, soldiers tried to forget the sounds of distant gunfire and the constant groans of the dead and dying. One German soldier would say of this sound, quote, it was not a human sound, just the dull cry of suffering from a wild animal. One man described the smell of the city as something between a morgue and a blacksmith. The 10,000 civilians still trapped in the city lived like mice huddling quietly in the ruins of their family homes, only daring to emerge after nightfall in search of roots, berries, or burnt horse meat. Before letting their daughters out, mothers would smear dirt or ash on their children's faces to make them less attractive in case they were captured. Russian squadrons, some down to just single digits in strength, made the Germans bleed for every step. One man, the sole survivor from a gunfight, returned to his command bunker, his right hand had been crushed in battle and he was unable to hold a weapon. But when he realized he was the last one left, he took off his helmet, filled it with grenades and told his commander, I can throw these with one hand, before hobbling back out into the snow. Another group of men, completely overwhelmed by a German advance, sent back a wounded comrade to their headquarters with a message saying, quote, Begin shelling our position. In front of us is a large group of fascists. Farewell, comrades. We did not retreat. The brutality of the war was getting to the Germans on a psychological level. They'd hit this city with everything they had. They'd bombed it into the ground. They'd cleared every block, destroyed every landmark, cut every cable. And yet, Ivan persisted. Inside a collapsed basement or underneath a sewer drain, he waited, knowing, almost vainly, that he would outlast them. Almost saying, is that it? Is that all you've got? Operation Barbarossa, Operation Case Blue, and now Operation Brunswick had come to naught. Hitler had swapped places with Stalin. Deeply distrustful of his generals that had been responsible for his victories, he had become sullen and withdrawn. The initiative had been lost. Morale had disappeared. 
and all the forced counterattacks in the world couldn't bring it back. To the south of Stalingrad, the Caucasus Army Group had been frozen in their tracks. Undersupplied and overextended, they'd barely moved since their front was deprioritized. Over dinner, one of the generals from this front explained to Hitler that he didn't have enough troops to advance any further, and Hitler screamed in his face, that is a lie. From here onwards, the Fuhrer would eat most of his meals in private. Field Marshal Paulus had been advised by his doctors that he was headed for a nervous breakdown. His generals fed up to him the horrifying casualty rates of the Sixth Army to prove that they could not sustain this offensive for any longer. But Hitler's response was to tell him to prepare the panzers for another final offensive, despite the fact that they had virtually no fuel. Reality was on one side and duty was on the other. The facial tick on his face must have winced incessantly as he again relented to Hitler's demands, accepting his order to try again. You must get that out of your head, Margaret, and you must do it soon. I would even advise you to be ruthless about it, for the disappointment will be less. In every one of your letters, I sense your desire to have me home with you soon. It isn't strange at all that you are looking forward to it. I too am waiting and longing for you, passionately. That is not so much what disturbs me, but rather the unspoken desire I read between your lines to have not only your husband and lover with you again, but also the pianist. I feel that very distinctly. Is it not a strange confusion of feeling that I, who should be most unhappy, have resigned myself to my fate, and the woman who should have every reason to be thankful that I am still alive, at least so far, is quarrelling with the fate that has struck me? At times, I have suspicion that I am being silently reproached, as if it were my fault that I can no longer play. That's what you wanted to hear, and that's why you keep probing in your letters for the truth I would have much preferred to tell you in person. Perhaps it is will of destiny that our situation here has come to the point which permits no excuses and no way out. I do not know whether I shall have a chance to talk to you once more. So, it is well that this letter should reach you, and that you know, in case I should turn up someday, that my hands are ruined, and have been since the beginning of December. I lost the little finger on my left hand, but worse still is the loss of three middle fingers on my right hand through frostbite. I could hold my drinking cup only with my thumb and little finger. I am quite helpless. Only when one has lost his fingers does one notice how much they are needed for the simplest tasks. The thing I can still do best with my little finger is shoot. Yes, my hands are wrecked. I can't very well spend the rest of my life shooting simply because I'm no good for anything else. Perhaps I could make out as a game warden, but this is only gallows humour, only right to calm myself. Pity that I am not a writer so that I could describe how a hundred soldiers squatted round in their greatcoats with blankets over their heads. Do you feel better now that you know the full truth? 500 miles away in the Kremlin, an exhausted Georgi Zukov hurriedly dusted the snow off his boots as he entered Stalin's office. Having just arrived from the burning city, he was there to give Stalin the report that he'd been chomping at the bit for. The confirmation that their long-awaited counteroffensive, Operation Uranus, was ready. The plan was kind of a reverse Barbarossa, a huge encirclement of German forces. But it wasn't to be contained within Stalingrad, it was further reaching than that. 1,100,000 men were waiting on the southern and northern flanks of the front line, ready to crumple inwards and encircle the Sixth Army. Chulkov had done everything he promised he would. For months, his troops had held on in the burning city, 
forcing Hitler to commit the best German troops into an endless street battle. Like a whirlpool, artillery, soldiers, planes, fuel, everything ended up in Stalingrad. The Wehrmacht forces that remained outside the city were a skeleton crew, one that had been picked at to feed the Stalingrad meat grinder. All that was left on the flanks now was a stripped-back core of mostly Romanian troops. Operation Uranus would begin on the extreme flanks of the front line, quickly defeating the foreign troops and collapsing inwards, encircling Stalingrad. If I went to plan, Paulus and his legion of the damned would be trapped inside, and Stalingrad would be their grave. The plan required a massive manpower, and while Stalin was happy to send in untrained fodder, it had been Zhukov that insisted the men have at least basic training. Now, crates full of American spam were piled high in Red Army storehouses, as were the newly acquired Jeeps, hardy automobiles that the Russian soldiers seemed to love. Over 60% of the Red Army's tanks and most of its artillery had been put aside in preparation for Operation Uranus. Hitler had keenly noticed the lack of firepower at Stalingrad, which had led him to believe that the USSR was finally at the end of their rope, while in reality the equipment had just been sent elsewhere. And so, in the early hours on the 19th of November 1942, Red Army Artillery Divisions received a single code word over the radio. Siren. On that note, we'll pause things for part four. We'll be back in two weeks for the long-awaited reckoning of the Red Army and the aftermath of Stalingrad. I hope you've had a great new year and kicked off any resolutions you've been working on. On the note of resolutions, mine was to try and hit 1,000 ratings for the show. Podcast ratings go a long way in convincing new listeners to give the show a first try. So if you've enjoyed the series so far, I'd be very grateful if you could give this podcast a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It just takes a few seconds. If you're on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the bottom of the Anthology of Heroes page, tap five stars, and write a short review. I'd love to hear what episode you enjoyed the most, and I read each one. If you're on Spotify, it's even easier. Scroll to the very top of the Anthology of Heroes page and tap five stars. You can't leave comments on Spotify yet. I'd also like to shout out to our amazing patrons who pay for the sound effects and music that I think really go a long way to setting the mood in many of the scenes. Thanks a lot to you guys, and a big shout out to our Justinian tier patron members. Angus, Claudia, John, Seth, and Tom. Cheers guys, see you on the next one. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.